Kyle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Jennifer Potter, who is a professor of psychiatry and behavior science, as well as the VP for research at UT, UT Health San Antonio. Thanks so much for being here, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. We are really excited to talk to you and would love to hear about the work that you're doing right now. You recently got a large sum of money to work on substance abuse and mental health. Can you tell us what you're planning to do and what your mission is around that work? I think it will come as no surprise to anyone listening that we have been through a pandemic. Um, and as a result of that, there were a variety of federal dollars available to support communities under stress associated with the past 24 months. A big part of that is federal funds to support uh, mental health and substance use. Uh, we've seen a dramatic, unfortunate increase in opioid and uh, stimulant-related overdose deaths at a time when we are investing more money than ever. So we went in the wrong direction, and we attribute that partly to the pandemic and some of the stress associated with that, as well as access issues to healthcare. And so um, in the state of Texas, there was a decision made to allocate some of that to build on programs that we had. Uh, so in brief, we have uh, uh, three pillars, and it's a significant amount of money, probably in total in excess of about $75 million or thereabouts. Um, and we have three pillars of that. The first is working um, using technology to create a provider network. So this is a group of individuals prepared and able to treat substance use disorder throughout the state. Texas has 254 counties. It is a very big state. I realized that when I moved here. Uh, and uh, making sure that people have that capacity in urban, suburban, and rural areas. So that's the first piece that we do. And um, it's a great way to connect a lot of different treatment programs and unite them around a common goal. The second is a telementoring network. This is about making sure that you know, we can help through our provider network treat a set of people, but if we tele-mentor and provide um, expertise and support to healthcare providers throughout the state, we can really amplify impact. Um, a lot of clinicians uh, benefit uh, from consultation liaison service and a way to get that expertise regardless of where they practice. Um, I'm at an academic health center, so it's a lot easier for me to get that. If you're in a rural primary care practice, you may not have that and we wanna create that type of experience. So that's our telementoring program and we're building that out as well. And then um, the third leg of our three-legged stool is uh, probably I think the most innovative thing that we're doing. Um, and it's, it's uh, I, what I call my big, hairy, audacious goal is we have stood up for people without the ability to pay if they don't have insurance or if they do have insurance, um, access to 24 hour, high quality, evidence-based telementoring, tele, I'm sorry, telehealth and telemedicine service. So basically what that means is um, if somebody's ready um, to speak to somebody, we have both peer recovery specialists. These are individuals who are um, uh, people with lived experience with substance use disorder who are in recovery, who are trained professionals uh, who are able to meet people where they're at um, with a substance use disorder. We also have uh, clinicians um, available, counseling staff and physicians. And if that happens at three in the morning, we're able to meet their need and get them into care as well. So this is our 24 hour virtual clinic um, and recovery support program called Recovery Texas. 
It's clear that that's a really integrated approach and involves so many people across your 254 counties. So why is it so important that you're connecting all these dots for people and not just leaving it to, you know, the people who handle substance abuse or the people who handle this specific thing? Why is that so important to connect? Sure. That's a really great question. One of the ways that we view this is we are really an exoskeleton on the existing treatment program. There are wonderful programs uh, throughout Texas and throughout the United States uh, that offer care. Um, the quality of that care can sometimes vary and also the uh, capacity of that care can vary. Um, so in a particular region, they might not have um, the ability to serve all of the people requesting services. We know that most people who would like treatment for substance use disorder are not able to get it. So our exoskeleton, this virtual clinic is a way to complement local resources um, and also to be able to provide them with the specialty um, consultation that they might need with a particularly difficult case. Dr. Potter, this is so fascinating uh, what you're doing. It's a big, hairy, audacious indeed. Uh, I have a couple of questions that are coming out related to this. One is, uh, before you got the grant, how much of this have you already experimented with and piloted as the substance of why you're now getting such a big grant? We might be able to learn something from what, what has already worked. Uh, may, maybe it's a simple question because you'll say, duh, everything's working. That's why we're getting this funding. Uh, and, and the other related question that I have is, if you build this out with this with this extent of resources, what percentage of the unmet need that you're you're projecting that Texas has right now do you think you would be able to fill with this exo exoskeleton approach? Sure. So you know, I am probably an unusual person to be doing this work, not because of a lack of subject matter expertise, but the way that I got to this place. My career started with clinical trials, and uh, my training is about uh, developing behavioral and pharmacological treatments for substance use disorder using the, the gold standard of randomized controlled trials um, to seed the treatment engine, if you will, with the very best care. Um, about seven or eight years ago, um, I began to realize, and this is not unique to me, I think the field has realized for quite some time that we may have innovations and, and best practices and evidence-based treatments our failure is not getting them out into the community. So for example, um, in 2011, uh, we published in uh, what is now JAMA Psychiatry, but at the time was uh, Archives of General Psychiatry, a very, what I would argue was definitive paper on the use of a medication called buprenorphine, which is an FDA approved evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. So that was 2011, and if, if any of us are tracking what has happened with opioids and opioid-related morbidity and mortality in the United States, you will track that at about 2016, there was real panic going on. Um, so from my perspective, that challenge and that failure to get what's in the clinical literature out into practice was a contributing factor um, to what we have seen with opioid uh, morbidity and mortality. The key part of that is, is that it made me really struggle with what I was doing and how to make sure that the work got into practice. Because I would argue that the opioid crisis is one of the greatest public health failures of our time. Unlike things where we don't know what to do initially, like the pandemic, um, we know what we can do to improve um, uh, treatment for opioid use disorder. We failed to deploy it effectively. 
So that's that's the first thing. And that was really where I started to focus my work more on training, um, making sure people understood how to use these medications. Um, and from there, we started to do other things and gain momentum and then had this really, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to take what we know from research and apply that in this public-private partnership with the state of Texas. In terms of capacity, it's a very hard question uh, because the data around substance use can be so challenging. We will not be able to fully meet the need of the citizens of Texas, and I know that. Um, what I hope we can do with our three-pronged approach is have immediate improvements by providing direct services. And then through the other work we do where we're training the workforce, we will monitor and see whether or not we are able to increase this capacity. Uh, but in the type of work that we do, it's so hard to measure those things because the world is always changing. Um, but but that's our that's our goal is to really be transformative. But I don't I don't have a good denominator, so I don't have a good numerator, unfortunately. Thank you. Is there a role of prevention with all of this? Because uh, obviously, I guess that maybe that's where that's playing into the mental health. And you're trying to treat those things before people go to substance abuse, or is that different? So I don't know. How does that? What is the role of prevention within it? Well, obviously, I mean, prevention is everything. It's much easier to prevent something um, than it is once you start using a substance um, to stop, unfortunately, um, like many things. Um, once you have the chocolate cake, it's a lot harder to put down the chocolate cake, you know? Um, so uh, prevention, we know that the earlier someone tries alcohol or um, an illicit substance, um, they are more at risk for developing a substance use disorder. At the same time, we know that the vast majority of people who try an illicit drug or alcohol do not go on to develop a problem. So that's the good news. And so that's why I always tell parents, don't panic, but you need to understand what this means. So the uh, prevention really needs to start very early on. Um, the average age of substance use initiation in this country has continued to go down and down and down. And, um, uh, it may surprise you or it may not that that middle school is really when um, people are beginning to try substances now. Um, and I remember the first time I heard that I was shocked because it just it was so young. So if we're going to do prevention, it really needs to start at the younger ages. At the same time, um, substances are part of our culture um, and normal substance use has been around and abnormal substance use for for eons um, time immemorial. So my sweet spot is really what we do in that in that uh, th that area, but but prevention is everything. I mean, that's really what we need to do is understand and help understand people. Um, you talked about mental health, uh, resourcing us and giving us the armature, if you will, to manage the complexity of modern life, um, and to manage anxiety and feeling anxious and and. Uh, struggling with the day-to-day -day is, is critical to everything. So I agree with you. Uh, the, the intersection with mental health and substance use has to be addressed. Could you, let's let's tease that out a little bit more, Dr. Potter, because obviously it feels, I guess, rather intuitive that it should be connected. Uh, but at the same mm -hmm. time, I'm thinking uh, there are children that are trying it at a young age, as you're suggesting, and that's what makes them more susceptible. So are those children necessarily starting out with some sort of a mental health disorder that may not have been diagnosed, that's then tipping them over into some substance abuse? Is that kind of necessarily always the predicate? Or 
is there a separate path as well for people that just get into substance and then they find that they can extricate themselves and then get caught up maybe being some mental health. So I really like to understand a little bit more of that nuance of how exactly they interplay. You know, it's so interesting because it is very complicated. Certainly there are young people who uh, try a substance first um, and um, you know, it's that complex combination of brain and behavior, right? And, and, and uh, genetics and what you bring to the table. Um, there is a, a genetic a predisposition um, family history for substance use disorder, particularly alcohol. Um, and we see that in families. Um, great pretend prevention tip is if that does run in your family, don't keep that a secret, <laughs> talk about it um, and be forewarned so that people are prepared to understand they may be at risk for a substance use disorder. I say that all the time. I think people are afraid if you name it, it might actually cause a problem, which is, it's just not accurate. Um, you, you can't tease apart the relationship between mental health and substance use disorders. I do not think it is the case that it is always necessary, um, nor is it sufficient for um, a, a young person to have some type of mental health issue. Um, that, that causal link is not explicit in that way, um, but it is definitely a risk factor. Um, it just, it's, it's inescapable. Um, and this is why, again, the rates of anxiety and depression in our young people um, continue to increase at alarming rates. And um, when, you, when, you, uh, when you put those things two together along with availability and access, um, it can be a very dangerous combination. But the, the, the research I don't think is definitive on this. And so if I showed you one study that said, yes, it's completely true, the other study would say it wasn't. Um, so we have to just be mindful of that. But the relationship is, is, is there. Um, I think of substance use, uh, sometimes as a lagging indicator. So for example, when we saw there was uh, in June of 2020, there was a huge uptick um, in um, suicidal ideation directly related to stress associated with COVID. Um, and there were also increases um, in depression and anxiety. We did not see as much of an immediate increase in substance use. But substance use is a lagging indicator because substance use is one of the tools that people might use when they find um, a functional relationship between stress, substance use, and relief. Um, and so uh, in cognitive behavioral world, which is a, a treatment for substance use disorder, we look for those functional relationships between why you use a substance and what was the desired outcome. Uh, and often that's, that's related to mental health. Fascinating. You said before that you're mission is compassionate evidence-based treatment with rational through a rational and scientific approach to reduce morbidity and mortality while increasing access and care, which is just so amazing. Helpful. And I, I, it just sounds like, why are we not doing this already? Why does this not exist? It should be all of these things. Why is it, do you think that these things haven't been done? Why is there not a rational data-driven approach, but also compassionate? What is it that's prohibiting this? And what are the limiting factors that would surprise people for why this isn't already happening? Because it seems like it just makes sense to do it that way. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. So um, if you look back at substance use disorder and how it was defined, first of all, notice I'm not using the word addiction very often. I'm using the word substance use disorder. 
Um, because when I say the word addiction, I go very quickly, um, and listeners, I would imagine, would go very quickly to addict, drug addict. And then we make the jump to all of these stereotypes or images. We have these tropes, if you will, about what that means. Um, and, and that's really rooted in how we believe uh, our relationship with alcohol and drugs. And so if you view this as I think historically in the United States, it has been viewed as a moral and an ethical issue, um, a characterological issue of laziness, um, a lack of motivation, an unwillingness to do the right thing. And that somehow this is like a fundamental flaw, really. And notice when I'm saying this, we're getting these heavy, heavy language words. Um, uh, that That's very problematic, I think, for solution focus, because it turns out the data says that all of those things I just did actually make a person worse than they make them better. Um, but treatment for substance use disorder really started out of the faith-based community um, and on 12-step. And 12-step to this day continues to be a vital component of people's work and their journey to recovery for some, but it turns out not for all nor is um, uh, an AA or a 12-step facilitation model, um, these self-support groups, these peer support groups, it's not really treatment. Now, I, I say that with trepidation because I know if, if for people who have used 12-step as their pathway to recovery, they may take offense at that. Um, and I'm not minimizing that, but what I will say is that judging, making a judgment about someone's character um, and having that be the pathway to understanding substance use ultimately is not necessarily a productive way to do this. And the data again says, if we go that route, you're less likely to see a benefit. When we start to think about this using more of a disease model, we understand that somebody has a pattern of behaviors, fundamental neurobiological changes, um, that result in um, certain decisions, certain pathways and certain actions um, that we can address by addressing those symptoms and looking for symptom relief. So if we look for symptom relief to be, um, to stop using, if that is the treatment goal, then we can measure that and we can monitor it. Um, it turns out that science and medicine have a role to play in what we're doing. And that's really um, the beginning of this. So the compassion, is that act of understanding that someone is not just a fundamentally flawed human being that has no worth. Um, compassion is about recognizing that someone is suffering um, and that they are in a place where we need to do something about it. We can't just feel sorry for them. We need to act upon that. So that's that compassionate piece. The science piece is saying, if we're going to act, why do we not apply a rigorous method to understand what works well? Um, and, and that's really what I'm talking about with that very long sentence <laughs> um, is, is how do we take the best of science and apply it um, to delivering our care? There are programs in the United States that make a lot of money with claims that cannot be proven. Um, they're expensive. Um, uh, they can cost uh, if people do not have insurance or if people have um, insurance that doesn't cover it upwards of $30,000, $78,000, depending on where you go. These are, these are self-pay programs. Some of it's insured, um, but they have outcomes that there's no evidence to support. Um, people turn to programs like that because they're anxious and they're concerned about their family member or their loved one and they would do anything. Um, and so 
science really needs to be the backbone of what we do. And you can deliver science-based care with compassion that sees someone as an individual um, that's more than the substance that they choose to use. So well said, Dr. Potter. A lot of, lot of thoughts going through my mind. I'm thinking you've got the science piece and you've got the compassion piece. When we were talking earlier, it seemed like maybe there's a third piece, maybe that's a compassion piece, but I'd like to hear more from you about this. The cultural piece, which you're saying uh, over, over the course of time, maybe even the recent uh, decade, what you've seen is that the stigma around mental health seems to have lessened a bit, which is now making the care more accessible. Uh, is, that, is that what you think of as compassion coming into mental health? Or is, that, is there a separate even cultural piece uh, that is coming to play that's allowing us to make advances in mental health, which are still holding us back on the substance use front? Yeah, I think, I think, I, I mean, I just want to agree with the latter of what you said is I, it's wonderful now to see people more openly having conversations about mental health issues. Um, and you see that in the lay press, you see that in media, um, you see people coming forward to talk about something that they've struggled with and also their story of, of how they responded to it and how they, they struggled with it, but they were able to get high quality treatment. Um, Substance use, for a lot of reasons, I think, including our own just cultural discomfort with it, um, is a little bit harder to not to crack. And I'm hoping and optimistic that with more conversations about it, we can continue to crack that nut. But people just feel uncomfortable with it. You know, um, when I talk about what I do and I happen to be at a cocktail party, that's not necessarily what people want to hear. Uh, or if I mention at a, a cancer uh, philanthropy event, we're at a gala to talk about cancer and everybody's really motivated to help with working on cancer and cancer prevention and cancer in their family. And if, if we mention that a leading cause of cancer is alcohol, um, you can see the glasses of wine go right down on the table because it's uncomfortable. People are supposed to be able to manage their, their use of alcohol. It is a pleasure that people have. They enjoy a drink at the end of the day. Um, the advent of legal marijuana, people enjoy using marijuana regularly, um, but it doesn't mean it's not gonna cause trouble for some people. So that's where we get into this cultural piece where you're supposed to be able to manage it, control it. It's weak if you can't, um, and there's something wrong with you and it's, we don't, we don't wanna talk with you about it. Uh, so that stigma piece happens in a lot of ways. I think, Stigma can be cultural, it can be from providers uh, who uh, feel uncomfortable treating it or don't think of it as something that they should be treating, um, which I would disagree with. Um, and it can also be self-stigma, the shame that people feel uh, because they think they're weak or they think they've failed their family. Um, and and, and I, I have to say, as much as we have compassion, that does not mean that uh, people get a free pass to do whatever. It is no, there's no doubt that people um, in the throes of an addiction or a substance use disorder um, can make really bad choices. Um, they can, uh, they can uh, uh, you know, alienate their friends and family. They can use that substance at the expense of uh, responsible parenting or making commitments, following up on work, um, the cost to our economy from alcohol-related um, uh, health issues uh, and, and days lost at work is huge. We can even see people steal, rob, and get engaged in the criminal justice system. 
But I look at those as things that we need to solve by treatment, not as uh, those moral failings. I, I have uh, so many questions that are still going through my head. One, one thing I'm reflecting on is something you'd said earlier in our conversation was about the language. And you're talking about the, the tropes that people use. Just connected back to the last comment that you were making. I, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, because over the course of our own lifetimes, I think we've started to see maybe a change in the way in which mental health is perceived. Uh, and obviously, there's physical health, and and you know, and 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 on the opposite side, we have the great stigma that's still associated with substance use, which becomes substance abuse, which becomes addiction, and which becomes judgment, and so forth. I'm just wondering, in a very simplistic way, are we missing a substance health kind of a epithet to think about this differently, to kind of take a little bit more of a this is just a part of our natural uh, health that we all need to be uh, taking uh, taking care of, better care of. We all recognize that we all need to just better take care of our overall mental health, whether or not we, we are pathologizing it or not. And I would think that all, all of us probably have a similar uh, proclivity to have some sort of a substance uh, challenge as well if we don't take care of it. So I don't know if I'm being articulate enough to, to, to express this, but I, I guess I'm wondering, does, is, the lang is there a language around this that can also help us improve and address uh, the substance issues. Yeah, so I love that you said that. I, I, I will take it in a certain direction. I hope that it's where you were headed, but yes, absolutely. So I think substance use is part of wellness and how we manage and consider substance use is absolutely the case. I would push that to even say, it's so important to understand the role of substance use in our lives. There's nothing wrong. It is a legal substance. Um, and, and whether you choose it, whether it's illegal or illegal is really um, not useful to me. There is a pathway to normalizing substance use as part of who we are and therefore understand what is reasonable and unreasonable substance use. And just the language about that. And I, I don't, I, I hope as you said that, what you felt was this is a, a, a normal conversation. This is a healthy exercise to talk about how we understand substances, um, just like we would diet and exercise. Um, and once you do that, it really unpacks and releases us from all of the judgment um, about this. Just it's it's something that we do. And, and some people choose to use substances and some people don't. Some people choose to drink and some people don't. But what do we do for those that may find themselves in trouble? It's just like every other health disease. We don't say, oh, too bad for you. Um, you have a heart disease. <laughs> you have heart disease. Um, you didn't do the right thing throughout your life. Well, you know, off you go. Um, the same thing. We have a backbone. We have that safety net for people who develop a problem to be able to treat them and return them to functioning. And it just, it drop your shoulders drop, yes. you know, and you're able to just talk about it uh, because we, we really do underestimate how life-threatening um, substance use disorders can be for the individuals struggling with them. And, and people deserve that same level of care that we would for any other health condition. Excellent. Thank you so much. And my final question is about you. What brings you to this field with this passion around this? And you clearly do have both passion and compassion. Where does that come from? Why is it so important to you? You know, I started out working in this area because um, I did a rotation. It was not something that I wanted to do. I thought substance use, oh, I don't, I don't, I had carried all of the baggage that we have with it. And um, I remember meeting somebody who got better 
And it was, it was just shocking to me. Unlike some of the other psychiatric disorders that we have, um, people can get better and they can, they can transform their life and the life of the people around them um, uh, with dignity and respect. I then uh, went through a moment in my life where I realized that this was a lot closer to home than I had realized. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very humbling in our field when we think that we know a lot about something uh, when it hits us and we have to navigate the treatment system, when we have to navigate our own guilt and shame and our own stigma about how we feel about things. Um, you know, I want everyone and what I tell everyone on my team is that if you or I were picking up the phone um, to get help for our family or the person that we cherish most in the world, what would we expect? Um, because I've had to do that. And uh, everyone on my, sorry, I get a little emotional, but everyone on my team knows that when the phone is answered, when we pick up the phone, we wanna give the exact same care we would give a loved one. A lot of physicians, and I'm a psychologist, not a physician, but one of the reassurances they give their friends that I've heard is, this is who I'd send my family member to, mm -hmm. right? Because you want them to know you trust that person. They are good, they are high quality. You will get the very best care, the best likelihood of success. I want everyone who calls us to know this is where I would send my family member to um, in the same situation. So that's what keeps us, keeps me going and it's it's what makes me feel like I'm doing something meaningful. And I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do that. And I'm very fortunate um, to have gone through my journey with substance use um, in a positive direction and have good outcomes for the people that I love. Thank you for sharing that inspiring story. And thank you for being here. I really am excited to continue watching what you do with this funding, because it sounds like you have an amazing approach. So we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just want to add, bravo. That was just really fabulous. I learned so much and I really appreciate you sharing your story as well. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for watching. Bye-bye. <laughs>